Good afternoon, Crossroads. We serve a God who is holy forever this afternoon. It's good news. We're going to continue in our study through the Gospel of Luke, and today we are going to talk about expectations. Expectations. Shakespeare allegedly said, expectation is the root of all heartache. And I learned this the hard way uh, last week. We, uh, a friend of ours invited us to go skiing. Their family had a place, and these people were skiers, meaning they knew how to ski, their kids knew how to ski, skiing was a regular part of their rhythms, so they said, come skiing. It will be fun, they said. So, me and my four kids, jump in our van, we believe them when they say this is going to be a great experience, we go to the Poconos, and just getting your kids dressed to go skiing is a Herculean effort. You have to get them dressed, and then you have to drive them to the rental place, they have to fit them for the equipment, then you have to drive them to the slopes, and then you're dealing with four kids who do not know how to ski. So we get to the slope and my wife and I split up. She takes the little two, I take the older two, and we are looking for the bunny slope. This is our level. My wife and I haven't skied in 15 years and our kids have never skied, like I said. So somebody points us to a hill and they say, that's the bunny slope. So we don't know any better, we say, great. We go to the slope and again, we have been here five minutes and they've never skied before. And my expectations were, we were gonna go down a gentle slope and learn how to ski and have a fun family trip. Those expectations turned out to be way wrong. We go down the hill, which was in fact not the bunny slope, and one of my kids in particular could not stop. The other one figured out that he could fall, and he was good at falling, so that was great. The other one starts barreling down the mountain. And he is going so fast, and I am keep trying to keep up, and I'm screaming, stop, stop. They teach him like pizza, you know, like put your feet together. And so we're getting down to the bottom where the chairlift is, and there's a whole line of people there. And my son, again, is barreling down the mountain, and he cannot stop. And I get down before him, and I see the crowd. I see his eyes. And I mean, a look of terror. If you look at my eyes, a look of terror. If you look at the crowd's eyes, everybody was terrified. And so my son came down and boom, he knocks this lady. And it turns out she's probably like a 60-year-old lady who was a ski instructor and she stayed down for quite a while. And my heart stopped. <laughs> I was like, oh no. And she very slowly got up and she kind of, you know, pulled this move like, Ugh. she looked at my son. She looked up and she looked at me, who I was very, very sheepish, and she gave me the biggest tongue lashing I have ever received in my life, and I have never deserved one more, right? She's like, that was crazy. I was like, I know. That was terrible. I was like, I know. It's like, do they know how to stop? I'm like, no. I'm so sorry. So my expectations were way off. Right? I looked at the, the photo on the brochure. It says families are going to laugh and play. I turned out my kid was going to be a wrecking ball, injuring all the people at the slopes. But we all know this to be true, of course. The importance of expectations. 
New York City sports fans, you know to keep your expectations low. It's appropriate to keep them low because if you don't, of course, you cannot deal with that type of heartache, right? If you believe the Jets were gonna make a run in the playoffs every year, would you survive? Think about marriage. When you do marriage counseling, the most important conversation you have is about expectations, right? Because if one person has one set of expectations and the other has another set of expectations, you are heading for a crash. Same is true in parenting. One of the most sold books for parents, over 22 million copies sold. What to expect when you're expecting. The same is true with our relationship to God. What are the expectations that we have in following Christ? What do we expect from God? What do we expect this relationship to look like? How do we need to adjust our expectations? Like, what if we are like, like me going to the slope? And God's like, hey, we need to readjust some of these expectations moving forward. Which leads us to our passage in Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, we're going to see that actually Jesus' first disciples, even John himself, had some expectation issues. So Luke chapter 7, verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, Jesus' miracles. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. He answered them, Go tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Well, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are, king, are in the king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? This is his closing analogy, so come back if you, if you zoned out, come back. What should, I what should I compare this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge for you, you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified 
by all her children. In this passage, we are going to see Jesus address three different sets of expectations. We're going to see him address the disappointment of unmet expectations, the complacency of having too low of expectations, and the problem of inconsistent expectations. So first, we see Jesus tenderly dealing with the disappointment of unmet expectations. The whole passage starts with this really interesting scene. John is in prison, and some of his followers have been giving him news of Jesus. Man, Jesus is healing the sick, and he's doing all these things, and they bring the message to John. John sends some messengers to Jesus, and he asks, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And in many ways, this is a very weird question for John to be asking. If anyone should have known who Jesus was, shouldn't it have been John? Remember, John was Jesus' cousin. John was the one who baptized Jesus in the Jordan River, heard the booming voice of the Father, saw the Spirit of God descend like a dove. John was the prophet called from God to prepare the way for Jesus. His whole deal was telling people who Jesus was, and now he's not so sure of it himself. John finds himself in a moment of doubt season of struggle. I imagine John is exhausted. Ministry and suffering has taken its toll on him. Jesus was not doing what John thought the Messiah should do. If Jesus really was the Messiah, why is he not setting up his earthly kingdom? Like, why is he not freeing the oppressed? Why isn't he setting free the prisoners like me? That's what we all thought the Messiah should do. And yes, I'm for the healings. Praise God. The blind are seeing. The deaf are hearing. Great, but Jesus, you're not doing what I thought you should do. John is disoriented. He's confused. He's not, de- he's not deconstructing his faith, right? He's not doubting what he knows to be true. He's just not sure what God is doing. And I think for many of us, we can understand that sentiment. We have all probably been in that position with John. Say, I'm not trying to deconstruct my faith. I'm not trying to doubt what I know to be true. I'm just legitimately confused and frustrated. God, why? God, what are you up to? God, I don't understand this. God, I expected things to be a bit different. And many of us, you might be in that season right now and you just feel exhausted from wondering, struggling. But John shows us that faith and doubt can exist in the same human heart. Even the most faithful saints like John go through these seasons and they need some reassurance. So you you can kind of see the scene that has been set up. And John sends the messengers to Jesus. And as we're reading, we're wondering, okay, like what is Jesus going to say to John? How is Jesus going to respond? Will Jesus be angry? John, you should know better. You can't find good help these days. 
Will Jesus be disappointed? John, don't you remember? How could you doubt me after all we've been through? Would Jesus be indifferent? John, no time for silly questions. I got the world to save, remember? Like, how is Jesus going to respond to John? It's not a word of anger. It's not a word of disappointment. It's not a word of indifference. Jesus simply replies by a string of passages from the book of Isaiah. And he graciously begins to readjust John's perspective on the Messiah. He says, "Ah, John, I, I understand where you're coming from, what you think I should be doing, but here's the scripture. Let me show you what type of Messiah I am. I'm not setting up my earthly kingdom right here and right now, although my kingdom will outlive every Herod this world has to offer. My kingdom is one of healing and saving and restoring people and one day restoring this entire broken world. It's a tender response, a gentle reassurance. John, I really am who you thought I was. I know at this moment it may not look that way, but John, stay the course. John, don't give up. John, I'm really doing the miraculous work that you once thought I did. I know it doesn't look how you think it should, but do not give up. And I wonder today if you need to hear that gentle assurance of your Savior. Maybe you've been in a season of suffering. Maybe you've been in a season of questioning and doubting. Maybe you've been in a season of being burnt out and exhausted. Jesus today wants to speak a word of reassurance and a word of hope. He really does care. He really is working, even if it's not, even if it is not how you expected it would go. So first he addresses the disappointment of unmet expectations. Second, we see he's going to address the complacency of low expectations. So Jesus sends the two messengers back to John. And it's as if Jesus then turns to the crowd who's gathered around and basically says, hey, while we're on the topic of John, let's just talk about John for a second. You guys all know John to be this prophet. I know that you guys all think John's a little weird. I know you think John is like this superstar saint guy. But what, what if... What if there's something more to this message of John? What if it's not just about him? What if this is actually about you? Look at verse 24 through 28. There's a series of questions, and I want want you to see this logic. Jesus is trying to show the crowds that they should expect more of Jesus. They should expect more for their lives. They should expect more of their purpose. He says, hey, when you went out to see John, what did you expect? A prophet? Yes, but there was more. Not just any prophet. John was the prophet predicted in Malachi chapter 3 who would come before Jesus and prepare his, his way. Oh, so a special prophet. Yes, but there was more. In fact, nobody born of woman for all of human history was greater than John. 
wow, so the greatest person that ever lived and a special prophet. But yes, but actually there is more. He turns to the crowd and he says, in fact, the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. And everyone probably would have took a step back. They're like, what are you talking about? This guy? No way. Me? No, that cannot be true. And Jesus is like, yes, John has a great purpose. But guess what? You do too. John was the greatest person of his age, but that age was coming to an end in Christ. So now those who follow Jesus in his kingdom will experience more than John could ever know. So in fact, Jesus was telling them, and he's telling us today, raise your expectations when it comes to what Jesus has for your life. Raise your expectations about the purpose and the call that he has for you. Raise your expectations about the power that is available to you in the Holy Spirit. What if our expectations are too low based on how great Jesus is? And the point of this passage is not that he's trying to rank people in the kingdom of God. He's like, John's like a four, you're all going to be five and you're going to be a six. That's not what he's saying. He wants to redefine greatness. In the kingdom of God, this whole thing's going to get turned upside down. And we've seen this in John's gospel, I mean, excuse me, Luke's gospel. All over the place, this theme is coming up. Real purpose comes not from making a lot of money or having a lot of power or status. It comes from humility, from repentance, from generosity, from sacrifice, from service. And we know Jesus is actually hitting at something because Luke tells us the response. The average Joes, verse 29, the tax collectors, those who don't have it all together, they're thrilled. Yes, God is just. We have a place. We have a purpose. The last shall be first. Sign me up. But the religious leaders and the cultural elites had the opposite reaction. They're like, no, I'm out. I don't need John. I don't need John's message of repentance. I think I have it covered. And Jesus says this really stinging rebuke. It says that they rejected the purpose of God for themselves. Can you imagine standing in the presence of Jesus and him looking at you and saying, you are too proud You have chosen your own plan and purposes over the very purposes of God. Something great was available to you. But you have chosen to go your own way. So this afternoon, what would it look like for us to readjust our expectations? Have your expectations become too low? Has your discipleship slid into a place of complacency. You don't really, you've been let down too many times to actually believe God's going to do anything. What if this afternoon he's calling you to raise the expectation, the least in this room, it's greater than John the Baptist. 
Third, we see the problem of inconsistent expectations. There was a group of people that Jesus was addressing that were never satisfied. I know you guys don't know any of these type of people. Never satisfied, always complaining about something. And Jesus wants to point out to them, you have impossible, inconsistent expectations. You ask for one thing at one moment, and then you ask for the opposite thing the next moment. You're never satisfied. And I just want to reread this passage, verse 32. He said, this is what you're like. He said, they're like children sitting in the marketplace, calling to one another. We played the flute for you. You did not dance. We sang a dirge, a sad song. You didn't weep. John the Baptist came eating and drinking. You say he has a demon. Excuse me, not eating and drinking. He has a demon. Son of man has come eating and drinking. You say, look at him. Glutton, drunkard, friend of tax collectors and sinners. And if there's any parable that a group of parents should understand well, it's this one. This is the parable for parents. Think about this. This is Jesus comparing the masses to a child throwing a temper tantrum. This is when your three-year-old, not speaking from personal experience, asks, asks for a bagel. So you bring them the bagel and they're like, oh, I can't eat this. It's too soft. And so you go and you toast the bagel and you bring it back. What is this? I cannot eat this. It's too hard. And then you go back and you try to get a new bagel and you get it perfectly toasted with just the right amount of cream cheese, not too much, not too little. And you bring it to them like timidly like, and they're like, what is that? I wanted the pink plate, not the blue plate. And you're like, what? I cannot satisfy you. You want this one second. You want that the next. You're never satisfied. And Jesus looks at the crowd and he says, I think this hurts a little bit, but that's how you are towards God. You're a little childish. You're never satisfied. You demonize John. He was too hard. He was too serious about sin and the holiness. And man, he didn't eat and he didn't drink. He was too hard. And then you criticize Jesus for the opposite reason. He did eat and he did drink and he did hang out with all these people. And you said he was too soft. So which is it? What do you want? And we do this, don't we? We want God to be just and we want God to be loving. But only on the issues and for the people we think he should. We want God to be holy, set apart, but also approachable. But only in the ways that make me feel comfortable. We want God to be in charge, but we also want to be in charge too. And we come with these inconsistent, fickle expectations. And here's the problem, I'm not trying to come down on you or anyone. Here's the problem with that. When we are childish, like this parable argues, we actually miss out on the joy of being childlike. And being childlike is what Jesus wants for us. In fact, Jesus loves children. He blesses children. He calls the children to come to him. And he points it out. He says, these are the perfect picture of what I want your faith to look like. See, these children... They're filled with joy. 
Look at these children filled with wonder and awe. They're not cynical and jaded. Look at these children. They're dependent, right? They don't, ha- they don't operate under the illusion of control. No, they just believe their father's gonna provide. I want you to be childlike, Jesus says, not childish. But sometimes we get into this rhythm. It's like we're trying to hold on to control. It's like we, we know in our mind that we want God to be in control. But in practice, we just can't let go. And all of a sudden, we look at our faith and it's filled with bitterness and critique and cynicism. It has no joy. It has no life. It has no wonder. We look at the gospel and we're like, meh, whatever. So I want to return to our original question. What are your expectations? What are your expectations of following Jesus? And I don't want you to miss what God has for you this afternoon. Maybe you're here today and you are dealing with disappointment. And John, you can relate a lot to what John looked like in this passage. Maybe you're frustrated, you're disappointed, you're weary from feeling like God is not answering. It feels like he's distant. He's not coming through for you. You don't understand why he keeps saying no to a good prayer that you're praying. I want you to hear the gentle reassurance of Christ for you today. He has not left you and he has not forsaken you. He cares more about you than you can possibly imagine. His plan for your life is good, even if it doesn't look exactly how you thought it was going to look at this stage. He is restoring and redeeming even the areas of brokenness in your story. And if he is saying no to a prayer, a good prayer, know that he is doing so as an all-wise and all-loving father. But maybe this afternoon, that's not you. Maybe you fall into the camp of the crowd and you're realizing you've had too low of an expectation of the God of the universe that you follow. Your faith feels stale. Your discipleship feels complacent. I want you to hear the call of Christ to you today. He has more for you. He wants to fill you with the Holy Spirit and send you out on his mission. He wants to walk with you intimately, not theoretically. He wants you to take what you know in your head and move it to your heart and light you on fire with the Holy Spirit to make an impact in this world. He wants you to know his power, his grace, his peace. Again, not something you read about, but something you experience. He wants you to know that he has a purpose for your life and he has the power available for you to fulfill it. But maybe this morning you're thinking, well, it's not me, really. Maybe this morning you're more like the masses that Jesus talks to at the end of this passage. And you've realized you've been... um, hanging on to the illusion of control. You've been childish in your faith rather than childlike. 
you've come to God on your own terms. And you've missed out on the childlike wonder and joy that Jesus offers. I want you this afternoon to hear Jesus' invitation to you. He's calling you to trade cynicism and control for childlike dependence on your heavenly father. He alone can satisfy the longings and the questions of your heart. He wants you to experience the freedom and the life and the salvation that comes from letting go and receiving what God has for you. And you might say, okay, okay, that sounds good. I'm all for that. I want to receive all that God has for me. I want to raise the expectations. You know, I want to trade cynicism for joy. Sign me up. But how do I know that's true? How do I know that's real? How do I know that's something I can experience? This is not the end of the story for Jesus. Right? If Jesus was confusing people in this passage, just wait as we keep reading. When Jesus dies upon a Roman cross, then people really got confused. Because, okay, healing, that's great. Feeding the, 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 the hungry, that was great. But Jesus upon a Roman cross, a crucified king, a dead Messiah, that made sense to nobody. And everyone had to readjust their expectations. But it was through the cross and the resurrection that actually God was fulfilling the very things that they were searching for. It was how his goodness and his love and his good purposes and his power were unleashed into the world. And everyone on planet earth had to readjust what they thought God was like. Well, I thought God was angry and grumpy, and I thought God had a list of rules, and he was going to smite us if I did something wrong, and all of a sudden, God is on a Roman cross dying for our sins. God was resurrecting in power, unleashing it on the world, and reminds me in closing of what Paul said to the Corinthians. Stay with me for one moment. Paul says, 1 Corinthians uh, verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And hear this, verse 22. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Do you see what he's saying? The Jews expected power from God, miracles, The Greeks wanted wisdom from God, and the cross baffled both of them. Didn't make any sense. But Paul is saying that at the same time that it was confounding them, it was fulfilling their deepest longings. Jews, you want power? You've never seen anything more powerful. The Son of God upon the cross. Greeks, you were looking for wisdom? You have never seen the wisdom of God like on the cross of Jesus Christ. And Jesus actually ends our passage today. Verse 35. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. I love that. Essentially, hey, you know how you know if this is true? Look at the fruit. Look at the children of wisdom. Look at the ones who are following See their lives. It's proof enough. What do you have to lose today? 
and laying it all down before him and saying, sign me up. I want to follow Jesus. I want to raise my expectations. I want to come to my good father. And that's the invitation for all of us today. So what are your expectations? And in light of who Jesus is and what he has done, how do you need to readjust them? Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful that you spoke a kind word to John in his doubt and in his struggle. You reassured him of who you were. And God, I pray this afternoon you would do the same for us. Give us a clear picture of Jesus and readjust our expectations. We pray in his name. Amen.